So I think a couple of years ago, Tim remembers this, we came back from Florida and this was 2020, wasn't it? Or 19, 2019, Michaela and I and family come back from Florida and the first Sunday back, you know, we were gone for like a week or two and I come in early and here's Tim on the stage. I was like, what are you doing here? It's not 10.35. Like, you know, uh, if you don't know Tim and his family, they're sometimes a couple minutes late and they've got a lot going on. But, but I just have to say it was amazing to see a man say, hey, I've been listening. God's been drawing me. And I believe that God has laid it on my heart to help in the worship. God's given me a gift and I feel like I have to use it. So it was great to see that. Now, over the few years, he's been doing a great job, and he leads sometimes. He sometimes just strums, and he doesn't like any of the attention. I just have one question. Do you get many golf requests like you get song requests? Because you and I played around together, and I did a lot of the carrying that day. All right? <laughs> the bags, yeah. Hey, Tim, what'd you, what iron do you want? Uh, I just no, I'm just kidding. But it was amazing to see how far Tim and his family have grown, and how he does such a wonderful job uh, singing, but also as a man and as a father and as a leader. So uh, it's just a, another testimony that he has and is living before us that all of us have to share the goodness of the Lord and have been given a gift, and it's our responsibility to live it out. So as we open your Bible, as you open your Bible to Mark chapter 1, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a heads up. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark over the next eight or so weeks as we begin preaching through the life of Christ leading up to his death, his burial, and what? Resurrection. Praise God. So that on Easter Sunday, we will conclude our series of Mark as we read about and preach on the resurrection of Christ, which is the most climactic moment in human history in which all of the church can shout and proclaim with confidence, amen and hallelujah, because Christ defeated hell, death, sin, and the grave all together and has crushed the enemy with his foot in which his foot is now just simply bruised by the head of our enemy. So leading up to, we're going to be reading through, I'm going to be preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And let me just give you a little bit of background of this Gospel account. Some of you may know this, some of you may not. Um, if you haven't noticed, the Gospel of Mark is just sometimes called Mark, which indicates that the Gospel was written by Mark. Good, we're learning. Or some refer to him as John Mark. Now, it is believed and there is evidence to teach us that the gospel of Mark may have been written by Mark, but Mark was not an eyewitness of Christ. These are actually reports passed down from Peter to Mark. And this was a gospel account by Peter reporting to Mark of the deeds, the words, the teachings, miracles of Christ. This is also dated around the mid-50s. Some of you say, oh, I was born then. No, no, no. Not the 1950s. We're talking all the way back to the 50s. We're talking 25-ish years after the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Peter is reporting all of these deeds and these words and these miracles of Christ. And Mark is writing them down, which will also indicate why you might see Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. It is very, by many scholars, they call it the quick fast-paced gospel because it's from one thought to another to another. It's very fast-paced as he's writing all of these deeds and these words and these actions down. That's why also it is so fast. You will only read it in 16 chapters. It is the shortest, the fastest, 
written in the mid to late 50s, and it was most likely written during their time together in Rome, in which his audience of this letter would have been Gentiles, not Americans, not even Jews, but Gentiles. So whenever you read this gospel, you will know that it is fast. It does change from one thing to another, and there's not a lot of depth to some of the stories, especially stories that involve Peter. Peter doesn't want to make it all about him. He wants to make it all about whom? Christ. So any of the stories about Peter, you'll actually get a more in-depth record in another gospel account. There is a difference in this gospel than all the other gospels, and it is also the way in which it begins. If you read through the all four Gospels, Mark is the only Gospel account that does not include any kind of genealogy, story of Christ's birth, or any kind of foundational teaching. So in Matthew and in Luke, you see the genealogies, the birth of Christ, you know, the story of the Christmas star, and all of these genealogies. And in the Gospel of John, you will find a very deep theological foundation leading up to Christ. Well, This gospel literally goes to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here we are at roughly 30 years old. Mark goes right to it. So what I want to do today is I want to read verses 1 through 13. I want to read them all at one time, all together. And then after we do so, I want to preach a a little bit about the record here of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Some of you may just know him as John. And as we read about John, let me just remind you that John is the cousin of Jesus. A few months older than Jesus. You might remember when you read the Christmas story leading up to the birth of Christ, Mary goes to her cousin named Elizabeth. And the baby inside of Elizabeth's womb, which teaches us that there is life in here and God knows people before they are ever born, that the baby inside Elizabeth's womb leaps when Mary comes. Why? Because Mary is carrying Jesus. We also see that Elizabeth gives birth to John. John was actually prophesied about in Isaiah and other accounts about the when crying out in the wilderness, as we'll read, preparing the way for the Lord. What he is doing is he is preaching and he is trying to prepare the hearts and the, and the people for the coming Messiah in hopes that they will not miss him. So let's get to work. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, 
You are my beloved. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you are my beloved son. I don't have Darth Vader's voice. I'm sorry. With whom you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. So, I want to read, or I want to go back and I want to discuss verses 4 through 8 at first. And where we're going to spend the majority of our time, I'm going to talk about three things that we see in this chunk, in this passage of Scripture that we just read. And in these three things are significant enough for us to look at. So for some of you, you may know, or maybe you don't know, that Jesus said that there was none born to women greater than whom? John the Baptist. That he was coming and he was preparing the people and, and preaching to repent of their sin and be ready for the one who was to come. You might remember in John, uh, I believe it's chapter 3, verse 30, he was addressed by the Pharisees and they said, Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Who are you? Are you the, a great prophet? And he was referring to Jesus and he said, I must decrease and he must increase. John the Baptist is always using his life his preaching and his example to guide people to Christ. So let's first talk about the baptism of John. The baptism of John. Now I'm going to read my notes a little bit more word for word over the next few minutes because I want to clarify a couple of things that we see through verses 4 through 8. We're going to discuss the baptism of John. We're going to discuss the livelihood of John. And we're going to discuss the preaching of John. And all of these three things were going to hopefully con maybe convict us or compel us to be differently than we came in. So let's first talk about the baptism of John. John's baptism, as recorded here, was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And he actually alludes to there being a difference between his baptism he was performing and the baptism that would become in Christ. So let's kind of break this down a little bit. And then we'll get into the, uh, <laughs> into the trenches a little bit. So, something that, that I've wondered. Now, this is something I've wondered, okay? This is not a biblical question. I don't see it in here. But I wondered this as I was reading and I was preparing. Was this a baptism that people may have experienced more than once? Okay? Just hear my question. Which is also another difference between the baptism that we as believers experience in Christ. So the Bible says that his was a baptism of repentance. The baptism of John would be where repentance preceded the baptism, in which the baptism was not the means by which sins were forgiven, but rather a sign indicating that one had truly repented. And then they were washed clean. So I wonder if maybe, just maybe, I don't know about you, but after you have confessed your faith in Christ, have you ever committed a different sin? Probably. What about two different sins, or three or four, and the list goes on. So I just wonder, maybe, 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 kind of like the burnt offerings and the sacrifices read through all the Old Testament, could this have been a baptism that people went and they repented of their sin, and they called out to God asking for forgiveness, and they were washed clean, and then after a few months, maybe they committed more heinous acts or more sinful deeds, do different, and they were wanting to constantly be repenting of their sin which this is a difference that you and I experience as Christians when it comes to the baptism that we share in Christ. 
Let me define that a little bit more. So, like I said, it's just a question. Maybe you could dig in. Maybe you could study. Were these baptisms something that people did on a weekly, monthly? The Bible doesn't necessarily indicate. But there is a significant difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of us as believers. So, they would go to John. They would be repenting of their sin. They would be baptized. Now, as believers in Christ, we are baptized as we choose to follow and surrender to Christ. This happens once and at the time of salvation. Okay, so we don't have to go every week and you know, cry out to God and get baptized this week because I did this or because I did that. We do it once and for all. So this baptism happens at the time of salvation. We are being buried in baptism with Christ as in his death, his burial. And then we are being raised to life with Christ. So with that, then we are given... We are gifted the Holy Spirit. As you read and hear, John is alluding to the baptism of Christ that is to come, in which he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is then given to us as converts to live within us, empower us to do his work, and to live in step with forever for the rest of our lives on this earth, shaping us into a greater reflection of Jesus. That is his work. So, the phrase here that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, I don't want to just, just gloss right over it. I, I do want to kind of mention it for just a moment because this is a phrase in which can lead to a lot of confusion, difficulty to understand, or even division amongst believers. So what do I mean by that? I believe that Scripture interprets Scripture in teaching that this phrase, this points us to the moment of conversion that before proclamation of faith in Christ, before confessing our faith in Christ, before believing in Him as our Savior and as our Lord, being baptized in His name, you and I are without the Holy Spirit. We do not possess the Holy Spirit as non-believers. People living in sinfulness and in darkness do not possess the Holy Spirit. But the part of the salvation experience for you and I as believers of Christ is this, that we are now full recipients of Him, His Spirit, His Spirit, the wholeness, the fullness of His Spirit. Now, in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says that as the body of Christ in one spirit, we were all baptized. The same Greek construction in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is found in the book of Acts, which is also found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 verse 8, and seems to clearly refer to the cleansing and empowering work that the Holy Spirit does in a new convert at the point of conversion, not a secondary experience that we look for later. All this said to say this, when you and I profess our faith in Christ, as our Lord, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, and we are baptized as instructed to be in Christ, you and I are gifted the fullness of God's Spirit. Period. Then, He, the Holy Spirit, will choose to empower us, equip us, use us, lead us, shape us, however He chooses to do so. Now, the question I have for you is this. If the Spirit of God, which is given to you as a convert, as a believer, is to empower you, to equip you, and to shape you, the, 
question is this for you. Are you a greater reflection of Christ now than you once were? Because if you are not, then you are not walking in step with his spirit and you are rejecting his guidance. You're rejecting his convictions and you are probably rejecting the work he is trying to do in you. See, he works in you to empower you to share the gospel with people works within you to shape you into a greater reflection of itself. So the question we have to ask is this, are we truly interested in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Do you or are you a greater reflection of Christ now than you once were? Because it is only the Holy Spirit that can shape you and change you and transform you into looking more and more like Jesus. You cannot do it on your own strength. You can have a greater sense of morality. You can be a better guy or a better lady. You can give more. You can sacrifice a little bit. But you will not be a genuine reflection of Christ without the Spirit within you. And you must walk in step with Him and not reject His conviction. So here's the thing. If you are not a greater reflection of Christ than you once were and claim to be a Christian and have the Holy Spirit living within you, then you and or I are wrong. Because his, his work in you is to shape you and to change you and to get rid of this sinfulness and get rid of this brokenness and get rid of this darkness and to equip you for the work that he has for you. So if we are not a different sense of reflection, we are wrong. Because Christ baptizes us with his spirit. The fullness of who he is now lives within me and lives within you. Secondly, we look at the livelihood of John. John was one that if you read in Numbers chapter 6, you will read about the Nazarite way of life, the Nazarite vow in which they would be living in poverty. They would eat wild bugs. They wouldn't enjoy some of the pleasures of life that you and I enjoy. And as you read the livelihood of John, you see that he is living in poverty in the desert. He's eating wild honey. Why is he doing this? Many believe that he took a Nazarite vow to surrender himself fully in every capacity of life to the work of God. That he would spend his entire life fulfilling the will of God in his life. That he would be out in the wilderness, out in poverty, just proclaiming to people to repent and to repent and to repent and to repent and to repent. And he promised, indicated by his livelihood, that he would restrain kind of restrained from a lot of the pleasures of life that other people were experiencing so that he could truly fulfill the will of God. So the question for us with this is, are we truly living lives fully committed to the Lord? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you leave here and you sell all you have and you don't ever buy anything ever again and all you eat are locusts and wild honey. Some of us would die of starvation. I'm not saying that you, that you uh, never cut your hair and you let your hair grow and you do as John literally lived. But the question is, are you truly committed to living your life in a way to bring God glory in all you do? All you do. Let's talk about all we do. Your marriage, what happens in your marriage, is supposed to bring God glory. The way you love one another 
the way you sacrifice for one another, the way that you give to one another, the way that you hold one another is to bring God glory. What happens within your four walls of your house or eight walls or 12 walls for some of you real fancy rich people, what happens within all of your walls is to bring God glory. What happens when you parent your kids is to bring God glory. What you do with your finances, uh uh-oh, is to bring God glory. What happens when it comes to your home, your wallet, your marriage, also your free time is to bring God glory. So here's what I'm not saying, that never can you enjoy anything ever again. You can never enjoy another moment of free time. You can't go to the, you know, to the golf course or to go shopping. You can't enjoy Amazon Prime. You can't watch the football games. All you have to do for the rest of your lives is to eat wild honey, locusts, let your hair grow, and never enjoy a moment of the blessing of life that you have. Because let's be honest, you and I are the most spoiled little brats of the world, if we were to be honest. I mean, think about it. Who here likes to go to restaurants and eat? Just raise your hand if you ever do it. Who here likes to spend money on yourself? Come on. <laughs> I see the Amazon. Yeah, I work there. I see it. Some of y'all, how many they got today? I get it. Who here likes to watch a football game or to go shopping or to watch the race? I mean, we all enjoy all of these pleasures of life. What I'm not saying is that you can never enjoy them again. And for the rest of your life, any free time you have, you better be in prayer and fasting and reading the scripture. No, I'm telling you, you can enjoy the life that you live. But enjoying the life that you live, if you are not careful, will consume you. And all of your attention, energy and affection will be spent on that and neglecting the responsibility of bringing glory and honor to your father. So I will admit, Michaela and I love a lot of stuff. We love the ability. I love the ability to go to work. Yeah, I do. Because it provides for my family and it allows us to go on vacation. It allows us to buy this or it allows us to do that. I love going to the gym with my girls and my wife and all of the faith and fitness family that we've developed in our gym family that we love so much. Like, I enjoy that. I enjoy laying on the ground, sweating and just ready to vomit all over the place and just seeing everybody else do it. I enjoy it. And I'm going to continue to do I enjoy watching my daughter play basketball or watching them do gymnastics or hearing them bang the keys on the piano and, you know, kind of like that. Uh, but, but I enjoy all of these things that we get to do. I enjoy it. And I'm going to continue to do it, but we have to be very, very careful that if our marriage is not bringing glory to God, we are wrong. If our free time is not God-glorifying, we are wrong. If our finances are not sacrificial and giving to the will of God, to the ministry, whether it be here or globally, then we may be wrong. Because you and I, in our livelihood, is similar to John, which is to what? To fulfill the will of God. So if we are not, then you and I may be wrong. And we need to repent of our sin and to seek the guidance of God's Spirit in those areas. Now, lastly, we look at the preaching of John. And I have to admit, this is where it gets a little personal for me or anyone else that stands behind this pulpit. Because what you see in John's preaching is that he was always exalting Christ above himself. To point people to Jesus. To speak about the mightier one to come. 
So let me just tell you this. I must, anyone else who stands here, must preach in a way that we point people to Christ. Period. But sometimes we preach about marriage. Yep. And it ought to bring glory to the, to the Lord. Sometimes we preach about money. Yep. And it ought to bring glory to the Lord. Yep. Sometimes we preach about drunkenness or adultery or whatever. I mean, we can fill in the blank with all of these sins that Paul might address, or we might talk about discipleship, or we might talk about letting our light shine. We may cover all different ta- you know, topics or discussion points, but they all are rooted in the love of God demonstrated through Christ for us. Therefore, we are to bring glory and honor to Him in all we say. So I must preach Jesus forever. And here's the reality. If I, can, if I preach anything other than Christ, I am dead wrong. If I preach to just live a better life and have a greater sense of morality and just be better than you were yesterday, I'm wrong. Because I cannot preach morality. I cannot preach to you to live lives as your corrupted and deceitful heart will guide you to just go and to do what makes you happy and to chase your dreams. No, no, no. Bring God glory is what I should preach. Exalt the name of Jesus in all you do is what I must preach. I cannot preach to you in a way that will lead you to growing and exalting yourself and believing that you are higher than you once were and you're better now and you're holier than now, which will ultimately lead you exalting yourself above Christ. I cannot preach that. And if I do, I am dead wrong. I cannot preach in a way that is more culturally acceptable or more tolerant of sins that have been accepted by our world. If I do so and they are abominations to the Lord, I am wrong. I must preach the good news of Jesus, period. Anyone that preaches from here must preach the good news of Jesus. We must preach Christ, the cross of Christ, and Him crucified. I must preach the goodness of God and about the sinfulness of man. I know sometimes it doesn't always feel good. I know sometimes I may preach a sermon. Sometimes I get convicted writing sermons just as you do, sitting here listening to them and thinking, will he ever shut up so I can go home and feel better about myself with a little bit of cake and ice cream and a little bit of television? Because sometimes we have to face the reality that God's word will step on our feet and will meet us and smack us right in the face because we are sometimes comfortably living in sin. But if I do not preach and warn to you about the sinfulness of man, then I'm wrong. I must preach the good news of Christ. The good news of Christ that He came born of a virgin 2,000 years ago to offer Himself as an ultimate sacrifice, loving us in such a way that He died in our place of death and separation. And I must preach Christ. And here's what happens. When I preach the fullness of Christ, when you listen and obey the Word of God and the Spirit of God, in the end, what you find is Jesus. And you find the fullness of Jesus, which is full of life and light and love and joy and majesty and glory. But here's the thing. If I preach anything other than Christ, you will be robbed of the fullness of Christ. If I preach morality, you will be better, but you will not come to learn and grow in the love of the Lord and the life in which He has called you. So I say this to remind you That when John preached, he preached about the mightier one. And he preached that people better repent. So here's what I will do. I will spend the rest of my time here or wherever the Lord may lead preaching about 
Christ. Preaching about His goodness, about His mercy and His grace, and about the sinfulness of people like me. Because here's the reality. You and I must come to understand, and it is my responsibility to teach you and to preach in a way that you come to understand, apart from Christ, you are hopeless. Apart from Christ, you will be eternally separated and will be rightful recipients of God's fierce anger. But with Christ... And by preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, you and I are able to witness people who were once dead in their sins and trespasses being raised to life in Him. We are able to see people who were once walking around the darkness being brought into the light. You and I are able to see people who were once lost now claim to be found. We are able to see people who were once blinded by their own sin be set free and gain sight and realize just how good He is. Therefore, I will forever preach Jesus. And I will point people to Him. He is the only one that can save you from your sin and to transform you from what you once were to where He's called you to be. So, well, I don't have a pulpit. And I will command you to preach Christ. I will command you and challenge you as well to preach Jesus. Here's the one thing that I hear it and I get it, but it drives me nuts. There's a phrase going around now. It says, what would he do? He would love first. I get it. He would and he did. But it's almost in such a, can I say, sissified way that Christians are now afraid to reach people and warn them that if they do not repent of their sin, they will be eternally separated in a place called hell. That, yeah, he would love first. He would love first in such a way that he would put on bone and flesh and to stand in our place before a governor and open not his mouth to be led to like a lamb to the slaughter. And he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And all of man would reject him. He would love first because in loving first, he chose to take our place in the rightful death that you and I are deserving of and to endure the fullness of God's wrath that you and I should be rightful recipients of. He took it upon himself and laid himself down and hung on a cross 2000 years ago so that people like you and I could be redeemed, set free and alive in him. Yeah, he would love first. But he wouldn't love in such a way that he would just become tolerant of sin and just pamper people and tap them on on the back and to tell them to just try better, try harder. No, he would love first in such a way that he would flip tables over because he was in a right anger. And he would tell people as we get ready to read next week, whenever he comes out of the wilderness, he begins to preach. What does he preach? Oh, just love one another. No, he says, you better repent before the kingdom of God is near. Therefore, you and I must be Growing in repentance and we must love first in this way that you and I are courageous enough to go to someone we love and say, look, I love you, but I plead with you. If you do not repent, you will be a rightful recipient and no one else to blame but you of the fierce anger that God's going to pour. We must be courageous enough to preach Christ. Not try better not do, do better, not work a little harder, but we must be willing to preach the fullness of Jesus. And then the fullness of Jesus is life as he defeated the fullness of death. Let us pray.